Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. I just spoke with Gabrielle Hecht about her very rich and very fascinating new book, Being Nuclear, Africans and the Global Uranium Trade. This came out in 2012 with the MIT Press. The book looks at the emergence of what Hecht calls nuclearity in the context of modern Africa. It treats Africa not as a monolithic unit, but rather as a series of different localities in which nuclearity and the nuclear and its attendant objects, like radiation sickness, like uranium, emerged in very different ways depending on local conditions of techno and geopolitical phenomena and very different ways that these localities were bound up with larger global networks, both in terms of market phenomena and in terms of global health and ideas and concepts of illness and the ways that illness and the body were kind of bound up with histories of the nuclear. It's a fascinating story that's built on many years of research in archives, in interviews, at some of the sites that are mentioned in the book, and I learned a ton from it. This is a book that is really fascinating if you are interested in science studies, in technology, in Africa, or just in a really great story that foregrounds in very, very helpful ways issues of craft, of what it means to tell a story, and of the ways that objects emerge out of historical accounts. It's just a wonderful, wonderful read, and I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the interview as well. We're here today to talk with Gabrielle Hecht about her new book, Being Nuclear, Africans and the Global Uranium Trade. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Gabrielle, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me, Carla. Could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background and specifically what brought you to the history of technology as a field and how did you come to focus on France and Africa specifically as your geographical area of study? Um, I was a physics major when I was in college in the early to mid-1980s, but pretty quickly I determined that I was much more interested in the politics of science than I was in actually doing science. And this was partly because of the context of the Reagan era, uh, Star Wars, the Strategic Defense Initiative was a big topic on campus, um, and, and also because I had always been kind of fascinated by nuclear weapons as somebody who was raised, at least during her teenage years, in Western Europe, which felt like it was right between the two superpowers and their standoff. So I ended up uh, taking courses in science and technology studies, um, many of which focused on nuclear things in one way or the other, and decided to go to graduate school in um, history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania. The first thing that I wanted to study was actually the Soviet nuclear weapons program, but I quickly was persuaded that uh, this would, was just too difficult to study in the mid-1980s. There were no access to archives. Um, and so I then thought about France, uh, in part because I had grown up there, and also because the French nuclear power program uh, was the largest in the world in the sense that uh, France got more of its 
electricity from nuclear power than any other country. So that is, in essence, how I came to write my first book about the history of French nuclear power. And by the time I got to the end of that book, um, I decided that there were pressing questions about the colonial dimensions of uh, nuclear power production that had been largely unaddressed in any of the literature on nuclear power or, in fact, as it turned out, in any of the literature on African mining history uh, and really anywhere. So I became very curious about uh, this dimension um, of the history of the nuclear age and uh, embarked on what turned out to be a 14-year project to write the history of uh, the nuclear age from a colonial and post-colonial perspective. Um, and about midway through was when I decided that I really wanted to remain, to, to focus my work primarily on the African sites, because those were the ones that, that truly had not been examined at all. Great. Thank Great. you so much. So in a, a bit of a departure from what I typically do, I usually start at the very beginning of the book and we work our way to the end. But here, what I'd like to do um, is start a little bit um, in reverse order and start at the end of the book. The reason for this is that there is this wonderfully, wonderfully evocative appendix on primary sources and the invisibilities of history at the ben at the end of the book. It's an exceptionally thoughtful account of the research that went into this study, and it's really fascinating for me. So I wanted to start off by just asking you really want just one or two things about it. So this appendix for me is evidence of one of the aspects of the book that I found especially great, and that's the sensitivity of the book and the reflexiveness of the book about the nature of historical storytelling, the craft, the materials, the form, and also the silences. In a way, the book is as much about the process by which an account of the past with its voices and its silences is created, and the process by which historical objects are created, as it is about nuclearity and Africa. So let's just um, maybe take a moment at this beginning and talk about that for a while. The research process for the book, as you explain within the book, extended across several years and brought you into many different media of historical evidence, including interviews, archives of very different sorts in very different places, experiences in some of the underground mine shafts that you write about, in some of the hall pits, and other spaces of the story. So there's, we could easily speak for an hour just about this part of the book because there's so much in there and it's so fascinating. But just to kind of get a flavor of this, can you talk a little bit about your archival experience and specifically, and I'm leaving this open deliberately um, to let you talk about any aspects of this you find most interesting or uh, for you interesting to talk about. What were some of the most striking or transformative archival experiences for you in terms of the way you were conceptualizing and developing the work for the project? Um, well, uh, the, the first thing to say is that there were no, uh, or there were very few uh, official institutional archives uh, available for consul consultation in this book. Um, that is partly because this is not the kind of material that gets readily archived, and partly because when it does get archived, it often gets archived by companies or institutions that 
are archiving the material for their own purposes, which is, of course, what you would expect. Um, but part of that purpose is, in fact, not to make the, uh, the information publicly available. Um, so I began the book by trying to look at some archives in France, uh, because the French were the ones who developed uranium mines in Gabon and Niger and Madagascar uh, and really got access to very, very little uh, from the what was then the Kojima, what is now Areva or known kind of in the rest of the world as Areva, um, the major French uh, nuclear, constru- nuclear fuel cycle company um, and construction company at this point. So anyway, um, and so, but this, this had been true for my first book too, I should say. Um, so in my first book, and, and I want to say this just because it, I want to accentuate that this is not particular necessarily to researching African history, um, which some people might think it is, but it's not. In my first book, I ended up uh, consulting private papers, uh, papers that were uh, lodged any which way in closets and cabinets and things like that. Um, And so I had some experience with that kind of uh, archival archaeology, if you will. Um, And so I just took the same approach, really, in this book. Um, And I've I've never been a very disciplined historian. Uh, I kind of do a little bit of sociology and a little bit of ethnography and really kind of whatever gets the job done in terms of answering the questions that I want to answer. So my first real move was to go to Gabon, um, where a uranium mine was still operating there, and to try to talk to the people who worked there from people who, uh, the, the, the guys who dug up the rocks to the company manager and, you know, kind of as many people in between uh, and in those kinds of categories as I could find. Um, and I also uh, wanted to see company papers and uh, it took me probably about a week to explain to the company manager who was in charge of uh, the site what I meant by an archive. So at first he thought that I meant a, uh, or what I meant by historical document. At first he thought I meant, you know, an annual report from five years previously. And I eventually explained what I, what I wanted correctly to him. Um, it turned out that he had a hard time understanding because he couldn't imagine that anybody would want to look at these old papers. And when he gave me the key to the three, uh, uh, buildings where these papers had been stashed, I understood his puzzlement because what I was confronted with were really just almost literally piles of paper that had been thrown in there any which way. Some, depending, I guess, on uh, the level of organization of the official who had put them there, some were in boxes, some were not. Many were eaten by termites. I would pick up a, a, a report and the termite carcasses would kind of fall to the ground and little bits of paper would fall after them. Um, so it was really quite a challenge to wade my way through that and certainly made it impossible to develop any kind of systematic uh, account of something like, for example, the way in which the company did or didn't track radiation exposure in the mines. Um, so, but it also made it much more interesting because, you know, these were not papers that had been sifted ahead of time for what was okay to show me and what was not okay to show me. So I found some quite interesting things in there. 
Um, it wasn't really until a few years later when I was doing research in Namibia, where there is also a very large uranium mine, um, where I also got permission to visit the uh, company and um, and stay on site for a couple of months and talk to people and so on. Um, and uh, But it wasn't until I got there and saw those archives that I understood more about uh, what was going on with the archives in Gabon. So in Namibia, um, the uranium uh, mine there is, the parent company is Rio Tinto Zinc, which is a very large British multinational company. And uh, RTZ had been, uh, had, had, had been uh, targeted by anti-mining activists and anti-nuclear activists and so on for many years already. And so it was a company that had clearly developed a sense uh, of the importance of keeping records for the purposes, of course, of countering lawsuits and, uh, and other kinds of, of political action. And so when I was given access to their archives, what I was confronted with was still not what a historian normally thinks of an, as an archive, you know, with a finding aid and so on, but it was uh, spotlessly clean, well-organized uh, room full of binders that were clearly labeled so that you, when you put, you know, picked a binder off the shelf, you knew what you were getting. And I kind of realized in that moment that, you know, the Gabonese archives or the, the, the archives of the French company in Gabon were the collection of a company that had never expected to have to account for its activities to anyone. Whereas the Namibian uh, company, or the company situated in Namibia, rather, um, was a company that already knew uh, and that had known from the beginning that it was going to have to, that uh, the day might come when it might have to account for its activities in some way, shape, or form. And so it was determined to make that possible. Um, so that was, I, I ended up feeling that that was pretty striking to me and helped me actually think about also the history that I was telling of those two uh, those two companies. Um, so along the lines is, um, as well as talking about the interviews and the archives, um, just another question about the form of the book, since we're on this topic before we actually get into the meat and potatoes of it. The form of the book is very striking. There are chapters that are interspersed with vignettes that each offer historical context on um, the coming chapter that you'll be talking about. Can you talk about that as a formal decision? How did you decide to structure the book in that way, and why did you decide to do it that way as opposed to um, just having straight-up chapters that incorporated the historical context within the narrative? Well, this is a this the topic is a very unruly topic, and the uh, you know there isn't a single historical narrative or historical context for any one of the episodes or uh, developments that I discuss. Um, so, you know, it would be possible to go on endlessly about all these multiple contexts and all the ways in which they shape uh, whatever item it is that I'm discussing. And what I wanted to do, so, so, so part of it was a way to try to contain that excess, but it was also, uh, that decision was also, uh, I was hoping a way to point towards the excess by giving different kinds of contexts for different chapters. I was, um, hoping to open up 
the discussion and show other directions in which one could take this kind of analysis, whether one is doing the analysis of uranium in particular or, you know, any other commodity uh, with an interesting history um, or really, in a way, any kind of historical writing, because there, there are always more uh, contexts than one can possibly account for. One is always making selections about what narratives to include and what narratives not to include. And so this this really was a, a, a way of trying to evoke that in the readers so that they would get some vision of what these multiple uh, directions could be. Um, I also tried to do that with uh, the uh, full bleed photographs that um, precede each chapter, which I kind of insisted with the publisher should be full bleed photographs. And therefore, you should not be able necessarily to see the edges of the picture because I was also trying to convey a sense of the kind of excess of history that was uh, part of, of this or any other piece of historical writing. And I should say that I actually had to fight extremely hard with the copy editor for, to let him, for, for him to let me keep those prologues. He really wanted to take the prologues away, and we had an enormously uh, hostile showdown about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you won, because I think it does exactly open up the story in precisely the way that, that you were hoping to, it sounds like. It really does invite the reader in to not just um, experience the narrative as you're laying it out as a fixed thing, but also to do precisely what um, happens with the other objects in the story, and that is seeing them as and engaging with them as created objects. So I think that's, um, and the photographs, I'm glad you mentioned that because they're also a very striking part of the book. So let's get into it. The, but the introduction of the book opens with George Bush in 2002, announcing that Saddam Hussein had recently been trying to obtain a bunch of uranium from Africa. And it lays out some motivating questions that are going to be recurring throughout the rest of the narrative. And some of these questions include, what is a nuclear state? What is it to talk about a nuclear state? When does uranium count as a nuclear thing? And when does it lose that status? And how do we understand Africa? In all of this, not as a consistent whole, but as a collection of very different kinds of localities. Now, one of the major concepts that you introduce right at the beginning in this introduction is a concept that I think may be kind of helpfully unfamiliar to listeners and to readers. And so um, it would be great if you could talk about that right at the beginning. This is the concept of nuclearity. As a, not as an essential property of things, but instead as a property, as you put it in the book, that's distributed among things. So can you start us off by talking a little bit about this idea of nuclearity as it shapes your argument in the book? Yeah, um, I think I'd like to start by using the example that I always use that I think is helpful to get people to understand what's a you know, what, what I mean by this. Um, so as you say, you know, in, uh, in 2003, George Bush used uh, uranium from Africa, invoked uranium from Africa, also known as yellow cake from Niger, um, as, a, as kind of the reason that uh, the, the, the proof that Saddam Hussein was in fact seeking an atomic weapons program. But just less than a decade before this invocation, there was a major report uh, on uh, non-proliferation or proliferation, I, I guess, uh, published uh, by the Office of Technology Assessment, 
a U.S. government, a now defunct U.S. government institution. And the appendix of this report had listed 172 nations um, according to which ones had nuclear activities and which ones hadn't and which ones had signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and which ones hadn't. And it did not list Gabon, Niger, or Namibia as having any nuclear activities, despite the fact that those three countries together that year produced about a quarter of the Western world's uranium. So, you know, that example really should get you thinking. It's like, you know, what, what, what does that mean? If producing uranium, whose only use is in nuclear reactors and uh, nuclear weapons, um, if producing uranium doesn't count as a nuclear activity, then what does that mean? At what point... In the fuel cycle, at what point uh, do objects become nuclear? And what does it mean for an object to become nuclear? Um, and so as I, I kind of dug into this history and discovered that at a, at a, at a, in the 1940s and 50s, um, in some places, uranium had counted as a nuclear thing. It counted as a nuclear thing for uh, the purposes of... Uh, for example, giving South Africa a seat on the International Atomic Energy Agency's Board of Governors um, at a time when South Africa's only nuclear activities involved producing uranium. But it didn't count as a nuclear thing in that very same decade for the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission and how uh, that the AEC did or didn't regulate uh, uranium mining as a nuclear activity. So, um, there was a uranium rush on the Colorado Plateau in the 1950s, and uh, efforts from a scientist at the Public Health Service to monitor uh, radon releases in the um, in those mines because exposure to radon, uh, in, enough exposure to enough radon, will lead to lung cancer. And so he was trying to get a sense of what that occupational exposure was. But the USAC refused to do any regulation or monitoring of the mines itself arguing that even though it was the only customer for this uranium arguing that uranium really did not enter its purview enter the purview of the atomic energy commission until it went into the mills so you have this sort of situation where in some contexts and in some places uranium counts as a nuclear activity and in others it doesn't um and so this really led me to think about uh, the, that quality of nuclearity and to argue that uh, nuclearity does not map directly onto radioactivity or fission um, or any of those kinds of things that we you know, might tend to associate with, uh, with, with things that are nuclear. Um, instead, things... Uh, we, we can see, you know, and, and you can see this most obviously at the margins of the of the nuclear industry, the kind of techno-political margins of the, of the nuclear industry. Um, there are times when uranium production does count as a nuclear activity and places, and then there are times and places where it doesn't. And uh, that, uh, that its nuclearity um, has to be uh, actively brought into being in order to exist at all. And that requires, in turn, institutions, regulations, scientific knowledge, uh, communication, media, all kinds of things um, in order for uranium mining, for example, to be seen as a sufficiently nuclear activity that it, that it would be regulated uh, by institutions that normally regulate nuclear activities as opposed to those that would normally regulate mining, for example. 
Thank you. Thank you. Now, as we get into the rest of the book, the book is separated into these two parts. Part one, Proliferating Markets, traces the trajectories of uranium out of Africa and throughout the rest of the world, the nuclear world specifically. And it looks specifically at the place of African ores in a, a market of global trade for uranium. Now, chapter two looks at efforts to commodify uranium by inventing the uranium market. And so this is a really interesting a set piece in which we see the emergence of a market come into being that also creates um, some really interesting new kinds of objects that are going to uh, recur throughout the story. Now, the proliferation of market devices, as you argue here in this part of the book, in the late 60s and 70s made it possible to think of uranium as an ordinary commodity. And this has really dramatic implications um, for uranium trade and for the emergence of nuclearity in Africa. Can you talk a little bit about this emergence of creation of a market here, and specifically how and why is it important that uranium becomes what you call a banal commodity in this context, and how does that shape the argument in this part of the story? Um, so when uh, at the at the close of World War II, uh, there's this uh, the, the United States decides that it's going to well actually General Groves decides the, the the guy who was in charge of the Manhattan Project decides that he is going to try to get a monopoly on the world's uranium um, for the United States in order to prevent the Soviets from developing uh, an atomic weapon. And he and a few others are convinced that uranium is a very scarce resource and so, so that it seems possible to get a monopoly on uranium. Um, now, as we know, that didn't work, but uh, what it did produce was this kind of sense that uranium was this uh, exceptional resource that uh, could and should be controlled, uh, you know, whose circulation and, and sales um, could and should be controlled by states, by governments. Um, and this sense uh, pervaded uranium production uh, by uh, North American, uh, you know, producers and by European producers uh, for, you know, through uh, at least the late 1950s, excuse me, early 1960s. Um, and when civilian nuclear power uh, started emerging as a an import as an important force in the demand for uranium, these producers realized that if uranium was subject to these exceptional controls on its circulation, that would make it more expensive to produce and harder to circulate. And so a uh, move started to turn uranium into a commodity like any other commodity, a commodity that could be bought or sold with no uh, special restrictions associated with it. But that required um, all kinds of political work to, to, to produce that outcome. So I talked about the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, a little bit earlier when I was talking about nuclearity. Um, you know, and, and as I said at the beginning, uranium production counted as a sufficiently nuclear activity to, for example, give South Africa a seat on the Board of Governors of the IAEA. But by the mid-1960s, uh, South Africa, which kind of remained a large uranium producer throughout this whole period, 
um, began, first of all, the U.S. and the U.K. were, the, those its contracts with those two countries were coming to an end, and they would not be renewing the contracts because they already had, uh, they were already, well, the U.S. anyway was already producing domestically all the uranium it needed. Um, and so South Africa needed to find other markets and also was very invested in uh, producing a set of international conditions that would make it easy to, to, to find other customers and really to create uh, a thing called the uranium market. And there were other countries involved in this too and other producers, uh, Canadians in particular. Um, but what this ended up producing was a whole new set of definitions about what, what counted as a uh, nuclear material that was worth regulating. And so by 1972, the IAEA had produced a whole other document definition, um, which specified that source materials in, in, uh, which is what was kind of the term for, um, for radioactive materials that, uh, that w would be used in fission and fusion, um, did not include, uh, uranium ore. Um, that is to say that uranium would not be counted as a nuclear material. And this was instantiated in IAEA documents. And so for me, that is in a way one of the first market devices, because what it does is it doesn't, you know, it doesn't actually create the uranium market, but it makes it possible to conceive of such a thing as the uranium market. Um, and from there on, uh, producers did their best to create, uh, to, to build on that condition of possibility and to come up with a whole series of ways of measuring uranium production um, and the availability of uranium on the market and then pricing uranium um, in such a way that it would make it easier and easier to treat uranium like an ordinary commodity. At the same time, there were always ongoing debates about whether you ever could treat uranium as an ordinary commodity. So, for example, it did not, the price of uranium did not make it onto a metals exchange until 2007 because its commodity status was, you know, it, it really wasn't being treated as a commodity in the ordinary sense of the term. Um, for example, uh, purchase contracts were always these long-term contracts with the prices set in advance and and um, and so on, which is, you know, true of other commodities too, but uh, but the particular way in which it, they, they were arranged for uranium was, was somewhat different. And in this whole process, um, the sovereignty of African states, especially after decolonization, um, ended up really taking a second role. So, for example, this thing called the Uranium Institute was created um, in the mid-1970s in England, and it, it brought together uranium producers, but it brought producers together under the rubric of uh, the, the uh, original uh, countries that had uh, owned the companies that were producing the uranium, so that Gabon and Niger, um, which were major uh, producers of uranium, did not were not actually part of the Uranium Institute. Instead, the French parent company was part of the Uranium Institute. So part of what I try to show in that chapter to set up the rest of the book or the rest of the, of the rest of part one are the ways in which um, uh, sovereign African entities were excluded from the production of the devices that would enable the creation of the uranium market.
Great. Thank you so much. Now, the next three chapters in this part one of the book, chapter three, four, and five, all focus on different ways of understanding the transnational technopolitics, as you call it, of uranium in different constellations of places. So chapter three is going to look at South Africa, Britain, and Namibia. Chapter four is going to look at Gabon, Niger, and France. And chapter five looks at Namibia, Europe, and the U.S. Now, we could, again, speak for easily an hour about any one of these chapters. So instead, I'm going to distill my questions about these um, in, in rather pointed ways to just um, take us through the material by looking at a couple of examples. In chapter three, you focus on um, South Africa, Britain, and Namibia by looking closely at the case of, and let me know if I'm, or just correct me if I'm mispronouncing this, Rossing? Rossing? Rossing. Rossing, yeah. perfect. Um, the case of Rossing. Now, this is really fascinating because this is a case in which we see uranium becoming kind of repoliticized by the idea of an apartheid-fueled atomic bomb. So apartheid comes into this as an, an important part of the technopolitics of this story. Can you talk a little bit about that in the context of the case of Rossing in particular in this part of the story? Yeah. I mean, in, I think in some ways the more interesting uh, example from Rossing is the example in the fifth chapter. Uh, of the I was going to get to that as well, but feel free to jump to that. Well, no, I, I mean, I, my answers have been so long at this point that I think I'll just jump straight to that one. Um, so, um, so, so Rossing was located in Namibia, which... And it opened the the mine opened for production um, in the in the mid nineteen seventies, um, but it was you know it was first opened up uh, in uh, the early nineteen seventies. And Namibia at this time was a territory that was occupied by South Africa. It had been given to South Africa as a protectorate after World War One, when Germany was divested of its colonies, and um, after World War Two. Uh, those arrangements, the you know, the UN promoted the idea that those arrangements should end. But South Africa, especially once uh, the um, National Party came into power in 1948 and officially established the apartheid state, um, South Africa, you know, was quite intent on hanging on to Namibia as uh, as as its territory. So it was a colonial occupier, um, and uh, the Namibian liberation struggle had um, worked very actively to, uh, to to enroll international allies in uh, its struggle to end South African occupation. Uh, sorry about that. I guess the notifications did not work. That's fine. That's um, fine. So, um, so, 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 uh, in 1974, the UN created this Council for Namibia, which, among other things, issued a decree that um, uh, it was illegal to export uh, any natural resource from uh, Namibian territory so long as the South African occupation persisted. So what this meant was that from that perspective, the Rossing mine was born illegal because it was doing exactly that. It was mining uranium and seeking to um, export it to uh, Britain and Japan and the United States and uh, various other places. Um, so it very quickly became this target for uh, for anti uh, for the anti colonial struggle and the and the anti apartheid movement, um, but 
as it turned out, the, the movement kind of quickly discovered that, uh, you know, the, the resource on its own did not seem to carry the political weight that they were hoping that it would. And at the same time that, you know, that this struggle was going on, there were also increasing suspicions that South Africa was seeking to build an atomic bomb. Um, and, you know, the, the, the kind of the political tensions over that issue were almost as intense as they are today over the prospect of an Iranian nuclear weapon. Um, so many of the same kinds of issues that uh, we're seeing today with Iran were uh, on the table with South Africa in the 1970s, including the uranium enrichment program, uh, the uranium enrichment plant that South Africa was building. And so activists basically enrolled uh, the their anti-nuclear um, uh, colleagues, as well as that sort of fear of the apartheid bomb, to say, you know, not only is it illegal to export Namibian uranium because South Africa occupies Namibia, um, but, you know, allowing Rossing to exist at all uh, is... Uh, it, facilitates the production of a South African bomb. Now, you know, in parentheses, I should say that the uh, uranium that was being produced at Rossing um, was not, in fact, going to South Africa. So it was it was being produced, as I said uh, a few minutes ago, by uh, under the auspices of this British multinational Rio Tinto Zinc. Um, and it was being sold to Europeans, to Japanese um, uh, I think there was even a contract with Taiwan, you know, and to the United States. Um, so, so the uranium was not, in fact, going to South Africa. Um, but of course, there's not really any way to know. There wasn't any way to know that at the time. And so, as a strategy, um, this worked extremely well. And um, and over uh, the course of about a decade, um, activists succeeded in uh, having Namibian uranium, in, in, in getting at least some countries to refuse to buy Namibian uranium, actually mainly Sweden, but it also in working um, with Democrats in the United States to include Namibian uranium in uh, the U.S.'s increasing uh, embargo on South African products. And of course, that was a uh, that was a, um, a conflict within the U.S. too, because by now we're in the Reagan era. So, um, you know, Reagan is, is talking about constructive engagement, but the Democrats are trying to push through the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act. Um, and, um, and, and at first, there's this kind of uranium loophole in the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act that says that uranium that's produced in Southern Africa, but that has then... Uh, gone through conversion plants in Europe or elsewhere uh, is in a sense no longer Namibian and thus can be imported into the United States. And so what happens is that the uranium, the, the sort of raw yellow cake ore goes uh, to these conversion plants in Britain and France where it gets a new uh, a bill of origin and it gets relabeled French or British uranium and gets imported into the United States that way. Um, eventually, that loophole closes, but by the time it closes, it's a year before Namibian independence. And so, uh, so, so, you know, it, anyway, uh, yeah, I think I've probably answered your question and then some, so I'll stop there. That's great. That's great. So as we move from part one to part two of the book, 
we move from discussions of the emergence of a market for uranium, discussions of the ways that the technopolitics of uranium are shaping the story and the emergence of different kinds of nuclearity, to a set of case studies that explore the history of nuclearity in Africa by focusing on the issue of health, of occupational health in particular, and especially among African mine workers. So many of these stories actually resemble the histories of labor or occupational diseases for other categories or other commodities, asbestos, gold mining. And this is, you mentioned in the book that this is quite deliberate. So it's a really interesting way to reframe this story. Now, the chapters sequentially look at uh, different aspects of this case, but the first chapter in part two looks specifically at global data and standards of radon and radiation exposure. And it starts to explore the complexities of what seems like a really simple question. Does radon exposure cause cancer? And you show the complexities of this and the way that this debates about this and ways of constructing this as a question and also constructing the answer to it really show us this deep history of nuclearity in this context. So let's talk a little bit about that as a way of opening up this part of the argument and this part of the book. Um, can you talk about a couple of things that are happening in this chapter, chapter six in particular? And in, in this chapter, you're looking at a kind of pair, a pairing by which at the same time, radiation exposure is made visible. And at the same time, and as part of this process, African uranium miners become invisible for over 50 years. So can you talk about visibility and invisibility here as it motivates what you're trying to do and the emergence of radon exposure as a scientific object as part of the story? Yeah. Um, so there's a long and complicated and troubled history of uh, science scientists trying to examine the biological effects of exposure to ionizing radiation. And a tremendous amount, the, the bulk, I would say, of the scientific work that's done on this focuses on external exposure to radiation. Basically, the kinds of things that, you know, the, the kinds of exposures that you most associate with events like Hiroshima or Nagasaki or Chernobyl or atomic testing. Um, there are a, there are small contingents of scientists who are also interested in internal contamination. What happens when, uh, for example, uranium miners inhale uh, radon gas, which is present to some degree or other in all uranium mining operations? Um, and then, you know, how what happens when the gas gets uh, you know the particle. The particles um, get lodged in their lungs and, and then continue to be there for decades to come. And um, so, you know, trying to sort that out required a whole uh, bunch of different kinds of work and practices. Um, it, it means that you have there's a dosimetry problem. You have to measure how much radon is present in the mines. Um, there's a causality problem. You have to be able to relate uh, the exposure of mine workers to illnesses that sometimes don't manifest until 30 years after that exposure. Um, and, and, you know, and, and then there's the Ill making the illness visible itself, which requires diagnostic procedures. So many of these studies, well, all of these studies really, uh, were conducted um, primarily in American mines, French mines, 
And, and the Russians were working uh, on this too. So there's some data from Russian mines and Chinese mines and so on. But most of the, um, the data came from American and, and, and French mines. Um, but the thing is, you know, and so the, these were the data that were uh, used um, to uh, both kind of establish uh, the kinds of relationships that uh, establish relationships between radon exposure and lung cancer, um, and also to establish what the maximum exposure level, the maximum working level uh, should be in mind. So, you know, was there a threshold below which uh, exposure to radon did not have any observable effect um, was one of the questions that people were trying to answer. Now, uh, so, so these, you know, these data were collected in quite different ways. Um, so, for example, American data was collected epidemiologically, um, which uh, didn't necessarily make causality uh, very visible. French data, a lot of the French data was actually data from animal studies. Um, so they uh, were this, these were data that were contested by the Americans as, uh, as having little relevance for humans, whereas the French contested the American data for being very imp- imprecise in its uh, dosimetric uh, measurement. So, you know, in the American data and the French data, there were aspects of this relationship between radon exposure and, and, and cancer that were visible and aspects that were invisible already in that in the production of data there. Um, but, uh, the, you know, one of the main or several of the main sites where uranium miners were exposed to radon on a regular basis were in, in African places. So South Africa, Namibia, Gabon, Madagascar, Niger, Congo at a certain point. Um, and in those places, as I sort of say later in, in other parts of the book, um, the such data as was collected uh, concerning radon levels in mines um, never made it into the international scientific literature for reasons that I uh, explain more fully in the book. And so what that meant was that a very significant body of data on radiation exposure and its relationship to illness just either was never produced or if it was produced, it never became action or usable scientific data so that, you know, you have this, this sort of 50 year body of knowledge that is produced, uh, that's already conflicting, you know, uh, on radon exposure that doesn't include, uh, major, you know, uh, sort of major populations of the people who are exposed in question. And, and so that, uh, inevitably affects the kinds of conclusions that, um, that scientists were able to reach about uh, what low-level exposure did or didn't mean for uh, for workers. And, and, and in this part of the book, um, specifically in Chapter 8, you actually talk a little bit about the importance of the fact that uh, black miners were understood as short-term migrant workers, and this actually um, contributes to the invisibility of nuclear things in this context. They weren't treated as data in the same way um, that other kinds of populations of workers were. Right. Right. Yeah. So, no, it might seem odd to be sort of to be saying, well, you know, miners aren't treated as data because of course you know what you want to it seems like the first thing that you'd want to show is that people are much more than simply data points um but what you see in the south african case is that um you know if if people don't even make it 
you know, if, if they're if, if they never become data points to begin with, then, uh, you know, exposure and illness, you know, per force remains completely invisible. Now, chapter seven, just to take a step back for a moment before we then leap forward, um, looks particularly at these phenomena by um, zooming in very carefully at the connection between nuclearity and labor. Um, in two contexts in particular, and this is Gabon and Madagascar, you show in this chapter that um, even though nuclearity and labor were intimately related um, and c- sort of co-produced in these two contexts, the outcomes were very different in these two localities. Namely, in Madagascar, as you're showing here, their work or the work of mine workers never became nuclear, while in Gabon, mine employees actually became, or in this context, their work became nuclear and they were able to take advantage of that and claim nuclear exceptionalism for themselves. So um, would you want to talk a little bit about this chapter and the work that's being done here, in particular in linking labor, the histories of labor and the history of nuclearity as sort of co-producing each other in this context? Um, yeah. So, you know, in Madagascar, the 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 mines were, mining lasted from uh, the mid-1950s to the late 1960s. So it kind of spanned the period of decolonization, um, but was really established uh, while Madagascar was still very much under French colonial rule. And the mines themselves were in extremely remote desert areas. Um, And uh, so even though the French had been very active about monitoring radiation exposure in French mines and about setting up in place, setting in place a a quite extensive infrastructure that did, in contrast to the Americans, treat uranium mine work in France as a nuclear activity, um, they were, they did not translate that all the way over into the Malagasy context. So um, the work that was done in Madagascar to make radiation, uh, the presence of radiation visible was extremely minimal. Um, and, uh, generally, uh, these, the, the, uh, the, the sort of fact of radiation was not explained at all to, uh, the Malagasy workers who themselves, um, because of the remoteness of the area and a variety of other reasons, didn't have access to external sources of knowledge about uranium or anything nuclear, really. So, you know, the the kind of, you know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, nuclear power plants, these were not things that had any meaning in this part of Madagascar, nor was there any reason for them to have any meaning. They had no political capital, no cultural capital. Um, They were just simply not relevant. Um, So between the fact that radiation monitoring was extremely skeletal and the fact that there were no additional sources of information that were readily available to people, uh, that what I argue is that their work uh, did not become nuclear. And part of what that meant was that, you know, not only did they never find out their radiation exposures at the time, um, but they never, you know, that they, they, there was never a time after uh, the mining time where where that information became uh, became common knowledge. 
um, to the point that there are, you know, many, there, there are, uh, there, there've been some very rudimentary studies since done since then that have shown that, that some of these old mining sites remain extremely contaminated and people are getting water from them and so on, but that's just still not visible. Um, in Gabon, the, um, the mine started there, uh, right at the period of independence. It started in 1957. Um, and uh, didn't really get going until 1959, by which point Gabon had gotten its independence. So the mine was, and, and the mine was still, it was run by the same French, the, the Atomic Energy Commission, um, but it was run, you know, as a more permanent site. And so, and the first guy who uh, was the manager of the mine had run uranium mines in France, and so he was actually pretty committed to making radiation exposure visible there. So already a much more substantive infrastructure was put into place to make exposure visible. Now, for 40 years, uh, while that mine was uh, in operation, um, there were still, you know, lots of problems. There were still lots of overexposure. Workers uh, for a long time, well, really for the extent of those 40 years, really did not uh, fully know about the dangers uh, to which they were being exposed. The, the work was not nuclear there while it was going on. But the difference is that after the mine shut down, um, well, there are two differences. One is that, that workers did have uh, access to other sources of information through uh, relatives who would go back to France or kind of other, you know, other, other sources of information that they were near the Congo and they had heard about uh, the mine there that had produced uranium for uh, Hiroshima and so on. So there, there, there were independent sources of information. And then once the mine shut down um, in 1999, we're already at a time when the internet is beginning to change how people have access to information. And, um, and, and so miners uh, there, through this kind of complicated process, uh, got in touch with NGOs who, that are concerned with these kinds of issues and took some measurements and conducted some studies. And basically, over the course of that following decade, managed to turn the work that they had done that was already you know, completed, I mean, the mine was not operating, uh, nevertheless managed to make nuclear sense out of it and did this as a way to claim resources and compensation from the company or the French state or, you know, wherever they could get it. Um, so that was a, that was a, a pretty significant difference between those two, those two places. Now in chapter nine, you talk about uh, Namibian independence emerging in 1990. How did that impact what was happening with Rossing? How did that impact our larger story as it's developing in this later part of the book? Um, so, uh, the Namibian, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the anti-apartheid, anti-colonial struggle in Namibia, uh, fastened upon uranium, the, the, the uranium mine as a kind of emblematic, uh, as emblematic of, of, of South African occupation pretty early on. And what that meant was that, uh, members of the liberation struggle um, had uh, active uh, contacts with uh, their colleagues who were working in the uranium mine. Um, and so uh, what that in turn meant was that um, 
there were all kinds of channels of information going back and forth about uranium. And of course, activists on the international scene were pointing out what the dangers were. Um, and uh, all of this ferment uh, basically worked to make occupational health a central concern of the emerging uh, labor union at Rossing. Um, so as independence was happening, at, and the independence process, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it, it, it dragged on for a very long time in the, in the case of Namibia. So there were numerous moments at which it seemed like independence was right around the corner and then another few years, you know, would go by. Um, and so through this whole process, uh, late the uh, workers at Rossing were getting more politicized. They created this labor union. They had these contacts with uh, with with uh, activists elsewhere in the world, and ended up making occupational health a uh, primary focus of their unionizing activities after independence. Great. Now, as we come to the end of the book in chapter ten. You talk about um, some of the ways that these issues are playing out today um, for Africa, and maybe it's a good way to bring this to a close or if, to ask you at least the penultimate question by asking you to talk about how some of these issues are playing out today in the context of contemporary technopolitics and nuclearity for Africa. Mm-hmm. Well, so there's this, uh, this, this uranium boom going on uh, all over the African continent. So in addition to the countries that I've already discussed, now there are, uh, well, I mean, Gabon and Madagascar are not at the moment uranium producers, although there's talk of restarting uranium production in Gabon. But South Africa and Namibia and Niger are still very much uranium producers. Um, there's a new uh, a mine that opened up in Mali a few years. I mean, not in Mali. I'm sorry, in Malawi a few years ago. There's talk of a opening, or there had been talk of opening a mine in Mali before uh, the war there um, that started earlier this year. Uh, there's talk of opening a uranium mine in Tanzania, uh, the, and in Niger, the Chinese have opened a vast new uranium mine, and the French are working uh, on another one. So, um, so there's this, the, you know, this boom in uranium production that's going on all over the the continent, um, and it carries with it the same problems and the same issues that uh, that I you know, I, I talk about in the book um, and that have been going on for, uh, for decades now. The, uh, probably the best way to communicate this is to talk about the lack of regulatory infrastructure in many of these places. So, you know, my argument is really that to make uranium mining visible as a nuclear activity that, that is, should be regulated, uh, you know, whose nuclear dimensions should be regulated by agencies that have the means, that is to say, the knowledge and also the instruments and also the political capacity to enforce those regulations. A tremendous amount of work is required to make that happen. And in some of these instances, we're talking about states that, uh, for whatever reason, whether it's kleptocracy or just simple poverty, don't have the means to put those regulatory infrastructures in place. And so you either have a situation where 
the mining companies themselves are trying to look like good corporate citizens and are basically putting the regulatory infrastructures in place or staffing them themselves, which is what you have in Namibia, which actually probably truly is one of the best uh, regulated places um, on the continent. Um, Or you have situations as such as the one that obtain in Niger, where at least as of a couple of years ago, yes, there was a state uh, radiation protection board. It had exactly two radiation monitors um, to give to inspectors as they were uh, monitoring radiation on these vast mines. I mean, the mines in Niger are just absolutely huge. And the idea that, that, that you could do any kind of effective regulation with two instruments is, is laughable or it would be laughable if it weren't that, you know, lives were at stake. Um, so those are the kinds of issues that are that, that aren't going to go away um, with uh, with with this this development of of uh, uranium all over the continent. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time. 